All right, welcome to the I Love to Watch You Play podcast with Dr. Sam Mignar. Although you will notice Dr. Sam is not sitting here with us. He is stuck in some storms in Ohio and having some internet trouble, but we are gonna continue on. I am so excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Mel Herbert. Uh, We've nabbed one of the preeminent COVID experts in the country, Dr. Mel Herbert, a professor at the UCLA School of Medicine, as well as the founder of MRAP, which stands for Emergency Medicine Reviews and Perspectives. Um, our guest founded MRAP nearly 20 years ago. It features a world-class faculty from around the globe. It's become the number one audio program in emergency medicine, drawing tens of thousands of listeners from around the world every month. Um, Mel, let's say hi, but before I really get to um, what we're here to talk about, I do want to play a clip of a video you did just so people can sort of grasp and understand. You, you educate emergency medicine doctors all over the world. So hi, Mel, here we go. This this is one of my favorite videos I've, I've seen and really helped sort of clarify some of the COVID issues. We're not going to play the whole thing, but you got you guys should definitely go to the MRAP YouTube channel and check it out. Here we go. Not that bad, yet terrible. So you've heard some people say that COVID-19 is not that bad. You've heard others say it's terrible, and certainly public health experts across the world sure are acting like it's bad. Well, if you're confused, that's okay, because this pandemic is exactly not that bad, and yet terrible at the same time. Why is it not that bad? Well, compared to the first SARS outbreak, the current mortality of COVID-19 appears to be around 0.5%, which is not that bad. The first SARS virus had a mortality of 10%. Imagine one in 10 people that got infected died of that first SARS virus. Not that bad if you compare it against the 1918 pandemic. That had a mortality estimated at around 2.5%, or about one in 40 people infected. And that virus was really bad for people between the ages of 20 and 40, leaving millions of children without parents. I mean, that was horrible, really horrible. So compared to those outbreaks, COVID-19 is not that bad, right? Well, maybe, but it's still bad. Here's why. It's really infectious. It spreads. All right, Dr. Herbert, that was just a little taste of why COVID is not that bad, but terrible. And truly, it was one of the few things I've seen that kind of helped me get my head around it. So thank you today for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're, you're welcome. That uh, was a fun video to do. And I actually did that because I was having trouble getting my head around the fact that this virus isn't that bad in some respects and is absolutely terrifying in other respects. And it's all about how infectious it is. And it's about the math of big numbers. So while any individual person doesn't have much risk of getting sick or dying, um, if you do it over the population of the world or the population of the United States, that's a tremendous number of people still. And left to its own devices, it'll overwhelm and almost did in lots of places, the healthcare system here in the United States. So if you're having a hard time getting your head around the fact that this virus is not that bad, but it's also terrible, that was to help you understand that. And you did that a few weeks or a month ago. And today things look a little bit differently. In fact, I was just reading some news articles. There is some positive news out there. So before we dive into the athlete specific, can you sort of catch us up on what's going on right now with COVID? 
Yeah, so here in the US, and it's different in different parts of the world and different parts of the states, we had a huge uptick as we expected to occur during the winter season. When everybody goes back inside, um, this virus is significantly more infectious when you're inside than when you're outside. And so we knew that there would be an uptick and it really did uptick. And at the same time, we got a couple of new variants of this virus, which appear to be significantly more infectious, particularly the British variant, which is now becoming you know, the most common variant. So we had here in California, for example, just an enormous uptick. Um, many hospitals got overridden with the patients, uh, ran out of oxygen and a tremendous amount of death occurring. But it was also in different pockets as well. You know, uh, low and middle income families, uh, multi-generational grandma, grandpa, lots of kids, uh, lots of families living together got hit much more than the people who were in, you know, situations where they were living by themselves or single family units. So it was terrible. It really probably peaked in terms of death in the beginning of February. But there's, since then, there's been a significant steep drop throughout the US and also here in California. So people have been doing the right thing and it's really hard because we are all sick of it. But people have been physically distancing and wearing the masks and we've shut things down and it's created lots of economic problems and social problems. But we've prevented in most places the hospital system collapsing. So everybody out there, you did a good job, but don't stop or it'll come back up. Yeah, that pandemic fatigue, they say, or uh, we're definitely feeling that. And, and, you know, to that point, there are people in all different parts of the country, right? Especially as we get it back to youth sports here. And you have an athlete, he he's, um, mm -hmm. participates in track and field and cross country here in, in Southern California. There's such a variance of what's being allowed and and who's doing what at this point in the college level and the youth sports level. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it's a little bit all over the place and the explanation is probably uh, very complicated. But um, first of all, why are the pro athletes all able to go back? And there's a very simple reason for that. It's called money. Um, they have a tremendous amount of money. They are able to do things that you know youth sports can't do. They can create bubbles. They can do daily testing. Um, they can sequester people away. So that's the single biggest reason. Um, if you are like your AOSO down the street, you don't have the money to do that kind of thing. So that's one of the reasons um, to, that you'll see these differences. But you also see that um, some uh, youth soccer is, you know, might be you know, fully flourishing in some places and not being played at all in others. And that's a little bit about interpretation of what the rules are and how safe it is. Sometimes it's just frankly people doing things that are not safe. It also depends on how much uh, of the disease is in your community. If you're in a community where the prevalence of the disease is very low, it's probably reasonably uh, safe to go and back and playing sports. Whereas if you're in you know, California, if you're in LA last month where 20% of the people getting tested were positive, there should be no sports going on wearing during those times. So it's a little bit complicated um, about why it happens, but there's some of the reasons that the, you see these huge differences and people get very frustrated like, well, my friend, you know, in Arizona, they can do whatever they like yeah. and we're restricted here and people, it drives people crazy. So and there is some logic to most of it. To Arizona to, to do it. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been a real sort of cluster of, how how teams and sports have handled it even up to the ncaa level where you were just saying before we started that your son is not back and he does track and field which if i understand correctly in the high schools they are being allowed to do he's at uc santa cruz not being allowed to do it but yet soccer i know at ucla and some of these other schools 
are back. And uh, I mean, is that a, a money thing too? I mean, soccer is not really a money making sport. No, I think it's a, it's again, it's interpretation of local health, uh, public health departments and prevalence of disease. And also just uh, there's these different um, ways that people think about it. So you might have a series of coaches or administrators that are like, we are very risk averse. We don't want any of our athletes to get sick or we're going to feel bad. And others are more uh, less risk averse. And so they're happy to do that. And there's certainly room to do that. You know, outdoor sports, though, are significantly safer than indoor sports. So that's the single biggest thing you'll see the difference in. And, uh, you know, track and field, you know, there is clustering. If you're like in cross country, there's clustering at the beginning of the race. And then that's it because everybody spreads out. So that's pretty safe. But at that beginning part, it can be an issue. So you'll see that it is very confusing. And, and the way to find out why your sports hasn't started up is to talk to people who run it and ask them, what's the reason that you're not doing it? Because they might have a very good reason that you haven't thought of. You mean the officials. Hi, Dr. Sam. We're yes. going to welcome back in Dr. Sam Minyar, my podcast partner. Um, I'm glad you got it worked out, Sam. You guys have some pretty bad weather there, huh? Uh, yeah, great timing. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, we just we played a little of the MRAP video. I'm sure you could uh, could kind of catch it. Now we're talking about um, just the big disparity and discrepancy in why some some are playing and some aren't. And Dr. Herbert was just talking about the outside sports, and I know that's one thing we really wanted to talk to him about too. Um, they truly are a lot safer. Uh, I know I have a friend who who was a uh, whole hockey team just got COVID. And you'd think that would be sort of safe because they're all sort of, they have a lot of protection and various things. And she, she ended up in the hospital from it, but mm -hmm. it went through the whole team rapidly. Um, is there, so in your estimation, should like the indoor sports still be not playing at this point? Again, it depends on where you are, how much disease burden is in your area. So for a lot of places in California, the answer would be no. This virus is, we, it's hard, the science is a little bit hard, but it's at least 20 to 50 times more infectious inside than outside. So this is why we didn't see huge spikes, uh, you know, during these sort of mass gathering events outside, but inside you really can explode very quickly. So in general, until the virus is at a very low level, you don't want to do indoor sports, which, you know, is a problem if your sport is indoors. Um, so so follow-up. Follow up mm -hmm. on that, Dr. Herbert. Um, so uh, I, I know I know it varies depending on you know where you are and and what the prevalence rates are like in in your area. But what about wearing a mask indoors for indoor sports? So, you know, if if it's twenty to fifty times more likely to transmit indoor, what would wearing a mask do in terms of uh, lowering those numbers? Uh, masks can certainly reduce it. Um, masks are not perfect, but uh, they certainly can reduce it. It's basically, you know, as you're breathing out, there's these little droplets and those droplets, if you're an asymptomatic spreader, and that's the problem with this virus is that you can have it and have no symptoms and spread it. Um, those droplets are the things that uh, mostly are spreading it. So putting a mask on just means that you're less likely to have this stream of virus coming out of you. So that can help. Um, double masking can help. Um, you know, I see a lot of people out running at you know fast speeds with masks on and and they are sort of doing it safely so masks could help the other thing that can help indoor sports is better ventilation and that a lot of places don't have that though you don't want to have sort of fans that are blowing 
uh, across the field so that if I was an asymptomatic spreader and all my team's over there and the fan is this side and blowing my virus all over them, that would be bad. So it's better to have ventilation systems where the air is being sucked up so my virus is flying up and out or uh, sometimes they can do it so it's coming down and then gets taken sort of down onto the floor in a way. So there are ways you can ventilate big venues so that it becomes safer. But um, again, it's about money. Very expensive to put those HEPA filters in and do it right. And your average uh, small team is not going to have the resources to put that in. Sure. It's interesting. It's like the the where the where my daughter plays volleyball at, they all have to wear masks when they're playing volleyball. But then, you know, they walk outside and they're all talking to each other. It's like, it's so hard to put these, and especially when you're dealing with kids, put these things in place that um, actually make sense in the long term. Or is it more just sort of like, okay, you do the best you can. That's how we've kind of viewed it. You know, it's not going to be perfect. And, you know, we're not going to stop the kids in every little situation but if, if while they're playing they have a mask well that's something maybe there's a little protection there but the kids just seem sort of oblivious to okay we have to put on our masks we're walking into practice okay we just we're talking to your friends you know it's like a it's it, i don't know what's to be done about that but um it's it's tricky yeah, you got to do sort of continuous education. But even like when you watch professional sports, it drives me crazy that the coaches and everybody, they're wearing a mask, they're doing the right thing. And then something happens on the field and they pull the mask down to start screaming, which is the worst thing that you can do because that really fires. <laughs> I'm like, please scream with your mask on. Or you see people with their mask and their nose is exposed. And that's like, well, you might as well not wear the stupid mask. So, and you're right. Um, after the game is over and then the parents want to huddle and talk about what happened in the game and the, none of them have got masks on. I'm like, um, or the kids just or think kids. about, think about why we do, why we're wearing this mask and try and be consistent. I know it, it is. It's tough to, to, to get all the different points of contact, especially in, in carpooling and travel. And I know mm -hmm. that down the line, but Sam and I were discussing, you know, is that ever going to be a thing that should be okay? Like, can you carpool now and wear a mask and think that's okay and have the windows rolled down? I mean, this is a big impact question on a lot of people's lives. Yeah, we don't we don't have great data on that, but um, if you're in a car with the windows up, so worst case scenario, car, windows up, full, um, and somebody's asymptomatically spreading, I pretty much guarantee you by the end of a, an hour drive with a person in the car, everybody else is going to be infected. Yeah. Now, you can reduce that if the person's wearing a mask. If everybody's wearing a mask, you can significantly reduce it. Probably if you wind the windows down, you get some air circulating through that, that'll reduce it some more. If you wear double masks, you're starting to, if you've got like a surgical mask plus then a cloth mask over the top, you're getting a closer to that magic N95 mask that we wear in the hospital. So you can reduce your probabilities, but it's not a great idea to be carpooling with people that are outside your bubble. Um, that is a pretty high risk thing to do. Yeah. Well, what about, um, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about, there are certain people that really are anti-masks and try to, obviously we all know that, but they, they've tried to bring up some data that it's unhealthy for the athlete to wear a mask. Is there any truth to that? Is there any reason that wearing a mask would be bad for an athlete? Um, if you inhale it, 
<laughs> that could be bad. <laughs> but, right um, <laughs> you know, again, I, I don't want to overstate what we know and what we don't know. We don't have large studies on, you know, taking lots of athletes and putting masks on them and say, hey, go run as fast as you can. But uh, the data that we do have is that the t masks that people tend to wear, um, they're just a little uncomfortable, but they don't make you retain carbon dioxide and you can still breathe out. And I see people running all the time and exercising all the time with masks on and they, they're doing fine. Now, if you double and triple mask, it might be really hard to breathe, but your body will tell you, like, I can't run anymore because I can't breathe if I've got lots of masks on. So um, I think it's perfectly safe. Um, it's just a pain. And that's why people don't want to do it. And particularly if you're if you're training very hard, you really want to suck in a lot of oxygen. It's a little harder through a mask, but your body is just going to say, well, instead of running a four minute mile, I'm going to have to get you to run a four minute 15 mile instead. Sure. So here in Ohio, uh, I know it's a little different than than out in California where you two are. Uh, sports have pretty much come back in, in full force, indoor, outdoor. And, and I know some of our listeners and viewers are, will be in the same boat. So what can we do to make, you know, if, if we do elect to have our children play sports, what can we do to, to reduce the risk? So I'm thinking, you said, you, we talked about carpooling, but what about public restrooms? We're, we're driving to a tournament far away. What about staying in hotels? What about driving on an air or flying on an airplane? You know, what, what should we avoid? What's safer and what risks, uh, how can we mitigate the risk? I think just following all the sort of public health stuff that we've all heard, you know, washing your hands after you go to that public restroom, which you should be doing anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, if you, you can travel on planes and uh, it is reasonably safe, wear a mask the whole time. Um, they're, they're pretty good about uh, the physical distancing in a lot of the airports now. And, they, and in the airline itself, when you're actually on the plane, if people are wearing masks, they have very good filtration systems. So you're not likely to get it there. You're probably more likely to get it getting on and off the plane when you go through the, the galleyways and those kinds of things. Um, when you're in um, the motels, again, the key, probably highest risk thing is people letting their guard down and uh, they're all excited and they're getting together in the halls and they're laughing and they're talking and they haven't got their masks on. Actually, being in the room itself is probably fine. Even if somebody who was an asymptomatic spreader there the day before, it's uh, very unlikely that you'll catch it from uh, their sort of remnants if the room's been cleaned because it'll fall out of the out of the air pretty quickly and if they've wiped down the surfaces and stuff you're very unlikely to get it in that scenario it's more the sociologic things that occur when you're gathering like that it's you wanting to hang out with your friends and eat with your friends and talk with your friends and that's probably the highest risk thing so just always be top of mind that that's that's really where your risk is is this close contact with people that are unmasked inside you know i have one follow-up question on the mask um is there any benefit to training with masks? So someone brought to my attention a while ago, like it actually can, it's sort in, in some places they train like that oxygen, whatever it's sort of like being in the mountains and training where it can mm -hmm. help you. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. And again, I don't know of any data on that, but that's why all the uh, runners go to altitude and train in Kenya before the Olympics is that it's uh, hypoxic. You don't have enough, you don't have the same amount of oxygen. So your body adapts so that when you come back to sea level, you're like a superhero. And so it is theoretically possible that wearing a mask could do that, although I haven't seen any data on it. Yeah. Um, but you watch if it turns out that some data comes out and shows that that improves your performance. You train with a mask, and then on race day, you take the mask off. Every single athlete in this country will be wearing a mask. 
Yeah, well, we'll have something to do with all our old masks, hopefully, exactly. <laughs> well, that could be a side benefit. I mean, also, I, I overheard my daughter and her friend talking about how nice it's been not having parents and the tension of an indoor game, people screaming and yelling. So that, I mean, we don't want to say there there's positives to COVID exactly, but there have been a few, obviously, a lot of the, the family time together. Um, Let's go to some serious questions. You know, there's a lot of articles and, and we're not trying to scare people and, you know, get a fear-based thing going, but there is some pretty serious stuff that can happen if you've had COVID and particularly for athletes. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, uh, again, the data is slow to come in, but there is definitely a subset of people, even with asymptomatic disease, that can develop uh, myocarditis, so an inflammation of the heart. And that's a very serious uh, thing because if you exercise while you've got active inflammation of the heart, you can have arrhythmias and you can die. And there's already some uh, cases of this that have occurred. Now, it's more likely that you'll have this heart inflammation the more symptomatic you are. So we see this in the hospital a lot. If you're really, really sick with COVID, we see a lot of heart inflammation and the people who are less sick, much less. But there was a couple of uh, cases on where these athletes were saying to their coach, I don't feel good. I just can't run up and down the court like I used to. And they tested them all. And there was a bunch of these kids that had um, were both you know, asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19 and shedding it. And they did MRIs of their hearts and showed that they had significant inflammation of their hearts. But otherwise, you wouldn't know except that when they were exercising, they didn't feel too good. So that was very concerning. And that was in one case, one in seven of the athletes on the team had uh, this heart inflammation and they otherwise wouldn't expect it. So the CDC now has guidelines like if you are an athlete and become COVID positive, stop training. Just stop training is too risky. And don't return to training for at least two weeks after you, the symptoms have gone away. And uh, if you've had significantly symptomatic disease and you're an athlete, you probably should have an EKG done before you go back. Uh, maybe a thing called a troponin, which is one of the ways we check for this inflammation of the heart. And if you really were you know, pretty sick and you're a high-end athlete, you probably should have an MRI <laughs> to make sure that you don't have that heart inflammation. Wow. That, I mean, that so, is some scary. I mean, it is good to hear you say that the less symptomatic, because I think what was really scary, like if you get COVID, obviously, you know to be aware of it and scared. But it's good to hear you say that if you didn't have symptoms, it's less likely or the less of an issue that you will have. That's right, right? Yeah, it seems to be uh, less likely. But uh, we don't exactly know how frequently this occurs. And there are studies going on right now, and probably some of them run by the NCAA, to find out uh, truly asymptomatic cases of this myocarditis, because that would be a big, big deal. And I tell my son, like, although you're young and healthy and all your friends are young and healthy and unlikely to get sick enough to even be admitted to the hospital, there's stuff like this that we just don't know about. And so as much as possible, you do not want to get this just in case, even if it's one in 50 kids develop significant myocarditis, that's a lot of kids because there's millions of athletic kids in this country and other countries. So it's again, one of those things that your individual risk might be low, but overall um, one in 50 kids or whatever number it is could be a lot of people. So another reason to not be, you know, hanging out and coughing on each other and yelling at each other and mixing in groups we want to be as safe as possible until everybody is vaccinated. So as a follow-up, you said that severe cases 
probably should get a an EKG done before returning to sport. What would you consider severe? Certainly any kid that's bad enough to have gone into the hospital with hypoxia needing oxygen, absolutely. They should be followed up very closely before they go back to activity. That's an, it's an unusual event for a, say a teenager to get that sick. So if you get that sick, then um, that you need to be followed closely. But if you are really sick, like you say you've got your athletic kid and they were just out, like couldn't do anything at home for a week or two because they were coughing, they were short of breath and just had no energy. That's somebody that I'd also consider moderately unwell and they should get an EKG and a troponin before they go back to, to activities, but definitely be working with your um, physician and uh, sort of make some decisions about that. And if you've got a kid, it turns out they got a positive, they had no symptoms, they were completely fine. Yeah, I just followed the CDC guidelines and in two weeks, if you're feeling great, you probably don't need to have anything done. So if there's any question though, you could talk to your you know, local healthcare provider and come up with a plan. Again, this changes constantly because we're getting more data all the time. There are there are hundreds to maybe even a thousand papers a day that are being published on COVID. So it's a little hard to keep up. The CDC is doing a pretty good job. So keep checking that CDC website. They're, they're doing a pretty good job of synthesizing the data as best uh, we have it. So did you just say, I don't want to make you repeat yourself, but if you're, so if you're a youth sports parent, is there any reason, Dr. Herbert, to have your kid tested for COVID to see if they were one of the asymptomatic ones to then know, or if it's so hard, because if you had it at one point, you're probably past those two weeks. There's really no need to go rush out and get a COVID test just because your kid plays sports, right? Not if... No, if you're just doing it to find out if they had COVID in the past, you could get a serological test, which tells you if you've had prior infection, but it doesn't really tell you when it was. So I wouldn't be running out to go and do that. If you're, if you're symptomatic, um, yes, you should go get a COVID test. The COVID tests are not perfect though. They miss, you know, a significant, you know, probably 20% or more of people who actually have the disease are COVID negative. And that's why um, some of these testing strategies don't work particularly well because you're still going to miss a lot of people. Um, we hope to get to the point where we're going to have these $1 antigen tests where, and this could really help. And there's a guy from uh, Harvard that's really pushing this. If we can get these $1 antigen tests, where you basically do a saliva test and within 10 minutes, you get a, a positive or negative result. It doesn't mean that you don't have the disease, but if it's negative, it means you're probably not shedding enough to be very infectious. So if we did this on a mass scale, you can imagine before the soccer tournament, everybody tests themselves. And if uh, you're negative, then you're okay to go to do the soccer tournament. That uh, might really change the way things go. And we're getting close to those really fast, very inexpensive tests. And you could do it for school as well. Every morning, everybody in the family gets tested. Okay, you're all negative. You can go to school. Oh, you're positive. You have to stay home. Now we have to quarantine you. Um, but it's only until those tests come down to that like a dollar range. Right now, they're still 10 to $30, that kind of test. So as a follow-up, until those tests come out, I hear all the time of teams, uh, youth sports teams testing, uh, and you know if they're positive, that if they're negative, they they're able to go on and play in this tournament and supposedly stay in a bubble at this tournament. And if you're negative, you you don't go. I'm sorry, if you're positive, you don't go. Uh, talk to us about what what are the flaws in that in that and and you know how how can things be missed and and you know what are the risks? The single biggest problem with it is that the tests are far from perfect. Um, if they're positive, I'm talking about PCR tests mostly. If they're positive, then you've, you know, you have the virus. But if they're negative, if you're missing 20 or 30% of uh, people who have it, 
then you could have a hundred people and they get tested. And uh, there's a couple of people in there that tested negative, but they're still, they're shedding the virus. And then you go play a game and then they spread it to everybody. That's the single biggest problem. If the test was perfect, it would be pretty great. You know, we, in medicine, there are very few tests that are perfect. Pregnancy tests is like the one that's really good. If uh, that's <laughs> negative, you're probably not pregnant. If it's positive, you're probably not pregnant. But these tests are to have nowhere near the accuracy of uh, something like that. So that's the single biggest problem with a testing strategy is that the tests aren't perfect. You know, Dr. Herbert, can we answer this question? Can you see that up there from Carrie Haber? Uh, where can I find more information about athletes returning to play post-COVID? Um, the CDC website. So if you do a Google search for um, athletes and COVID, the CDC has a really nice algorithmic approach to uh, what you should do. And I basically sort of summarized it there about when you should consider an EKG and when you should consider an MRI. But I know this has been frustrating to people, but you'll have to keep checking it because like I say, the data keeps changing and people think that this is uh, like a dichotomous thing. Like we know everything about it. We know very little about it right now. So as we get more data that those recommendations will change, but the CDC website is where I'd start just by doing a Google search. And do you see the second part of that is the EKG, the only way to diagnose, I'm not even gonna try it, myocardial. Myocarditis. Um, the EKG is a good, is a reasonable screen. But actually, it's not a great way to make the diagnosis of myocarditis. It's a combination of EKG, a thing called a troponin, which we can measure in the blood to see if there's any inflammation of the heart there. And then MRI is becoming sort of the gold standard. If you really want to know, you can do an MRI. Um, so it's EKG itself is not a great test if it's negative to say you don't have it. Um, again, like the COVID tests, it's not perfect. You know, I, I've, I was privy to some parents of college athletes, a chat group, and the misinformation and the, and the variance in how they were handling their return. So a bunch of parents were saying, you know, their kid had COVID, some coaches wanted them right back on the field. So, and and it's, it's unfortunate, but sort of like you're saying, you have to keep checking back with um, the CDC. The NCAA also has guidelines that um, are very, that state very clearly to have an EKG and to do some blood work and various things. But so many times with so much of COVID, they're just not, schools aren't following the guidelines. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. Well, following the guidelines is, you know, it's hard and it's uh, expensive. And the people, I see a lot of variants about uh, people following these guidelines. And, and particularly now, as we sort of, the virus sort of starts to come down right now. People get more and more lax about it. But the thing that I actually worry most about with uh, athletes is this myocarditis thing. We just don't know how common it is. We don't know how bad it is. You may have seen on YouTube a couple of videos of some players that just collapsed on the field and they had undiagnosed myocarditis. So again, that could be really, really rare and you're more likely to die in a car crash going to the event than having this syndrome. But it does make me concerned that we have so little data about how common it is. So be as careful as you can until we know is what I tell everybody. As, so I know we're talking about the, the serious things and we're trying not to be doom and gloom, but, but, mm -hmm. but, but I, as a psychologist, I have to ask about the mental health side. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, on the one hand, you have fear and anxiety about getting COVID. On the other hand, you have, you know, increased depression and anxiety from not being able to participate in sports. 
um, you know, what, what are your thoughts? What are your answers? How do we balance the mental health with the physical dangers? Yeah, this is one of those, uh, which way do you want me to get this wrong kind of questions? <laughs> sure. Uh, so if you shut it down and say, no youth sports, everybody stays home, then we know, we've seen, and there'll be a lot of depression and sport is good and it's an anxiolytic and uh, there's so much good that comes from exercise and being with your friends. So if you shut everything down, you're going to have a lot of mental health issues. If you just do it the other way, it's like, okay, so therefore let's everybody go back to sport. You're going to expose a lot of kids. Some of those kids are going to get sick, but much more importantly, those kids are going to infect coaches and coaches' families. And so again, it's about dialing this, you know, which way you want to do the dials. So everybody is screaming at each other about like, you're crazy. You should just go back to sport or you're crazy because you are going back to sport because it's just, again, how, how wrong do you, which way do you want me to get this wrong? So we're all trying to find the balance. What is the perfect balance of being as safe as possible, but at the same time, understanding, you know, shutting down kids' lives and all of our lives for a year, it really produces significant mental health problems. We're seeing this in the emergency departments. We are seeing tremendous numbers of kids that are suicidal, that are depressed because they haven't been able to see their friends. They haven't been able to play sports. So it's a really difficult balance and everybody's trying to get it right. And it's not very helpful when we're screaming at each other about, you know, why you're doing it wrong. We're trying to find this balance between those two. And as we get more data, um, it appears that we can open schools um, much more safely than we thought, that we can go back to sports if we do all these things correctly and reduce the risk. But we shouldn't get too far ahead of the data and we should stop screaming at each other about, you know, you're an idiot because you're doing it one way and I'm doing it the other. You know, I, I don't know if there's something, Dr. Herbert, that we haven't gotten to that you think is really important or key. But before we wrap things up and anybody who's listening, I know we've had a pretty good um a pretty good following out there paying attention and, and peeking in, but not a ton of questions. So if anyone has any questions before we wrap it up, please do so. Um, but Dr. Herbert, is there something you want else you, you think that uh, we didn't touch on that would be important to get to? Um, if you're, again, if you're struggling with trying to get your head around the fact that this is not that bad and terrible, go watch that video. I think we did a pretty good job of explaining that. And that's, that's true for lots of the stuff we're talking about. Uh, again, the, the youth sport's really important to, to get kids back and uh, playing together. So let's try and do it as safely as we can. And, you know, this thing with masks just drive me crazy how this has become a political issue. Masks are so simple and the data that we have is really strong that they significantly reduce spread. So wear a mask and now you're hearing about double masking because uh, if you're not running around and you don't need to uh, be you know, soaking in lots of air, then double masking just when you go to the grocery store can be really helpful. So um, continue to follow that info, but masks are so simple and this is not a political issue. It's simply a public health thing and it's the cheapest, simplest, stupid, easy thing to do. We should just do it. Um, here's another question for you, Dr. Herbert. Uh, can you, you, I'll read it out. What metrics and who or who, H, capital W-H-O, will be interpreting those metrics that will determine when COVID-19 is desi designated an endemic? So I'm not exactly sure where they're going there, but what's probably going to happen here is that COVID-19 is going to become just part of the viruses that are part of being a human, that we'll get to the end of this with vaccines and people getting infected, but it's not going to go away. It will be like flu season. You're probably going to have a COVID shot uh, once a year for the rest of your life. Um, when will that happen? 
I've heard some people say 2024, 2023, maybe, that this is going to continue to spread. Uh, people are going to get vaccines in um, low and middle income countries. They're going to be much slower at getting the vaccine. So it'll still be spreading there and that will be spreading back here into the US. But it's a couple of years before this becomes just a part of life and everybody's just getting a booster every year. Things will look a lot better, we hope, by the end of the summer, at least here in the United States. Uh, vaccine production is ramping. And we believe that by the summer, normally the COVID virus will go come down. We'll have a lot of people that have uh, the vaccine. So things will look a lot better. The big question that I always get is, is the Olympics going to occur? And I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, they have lots of money. Uh, there is potentially a way that they could do it pretty safely. But it probably, if it occurs, there won't be anybody in the, in the stands watching because Japan keeps struggling with outbreaks. Just when they think they're over it, they have another outbreak. So I'm not sure we're going to see... Um, anybody going to the Olympics except the athletes, maybe. Um, here's another question. Thank you, Phil. If everyone is wearing a mask during play, do we still need to have risk levels by sport? It's a great question. Yeah, you know, there's sports and then there's sports. So if you are running outside with distances between you and the other athletes, that's probably low risk. But if you're wrestling and uh, you're an asymptomatic carrier and as you're wrestling that person to the ground, you're all over them, even with a mask on, you know, that's going to be a pretty high risk thing. So masks certainly can reduce that risk, but it really is there's, there's sport and there's sport. And it's all about how close and how much effort and how much, you know, exchange of air is occurring in that very small area. So not all sports are created equal, unfortunately. All right. I think that just about does it. Dr. Herbert, thank you again. And everybody who wants to follow up with that video or see his other work, it's mrap.org. And there's also a YouTube channel um, where that video um, is located at. And I highly recommend it. it. It was so helpful in getting your head around this problem. Dr. Sam, I'm glad you got in and uh, hopefully you, you, it's not too bad out there where you're at. We are, Dr. Herbert and I are in like 80 degree weather and I can't even imagine what, what's happening over there in, oh. in Ohio, but if you need it's only to, 80 degrees and... colder than that. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <clears throat> one, one, one last uh, plug I wanted to, we have a great article on the I Love to Watch You Play website on sports masks. Um, I actually found a couple of ones for my kids that I wasn't aware existed that they love. So uh, I won't, I won't uh, promote anyone in particular <laughs> right now. But, uh, but so please check that out. And uh, we will be turning this into a podcast. And uh, so, um, you know, you'll be able to, to re, to re-listen to this and, and we hope to make this a regular occurrence, uh, perhaps monthly. I think our next one is going to be about sleep, right? That is correct. Yes. Yeah, sleep and injury and how much sleep should you get? And, um, and yeah, we're going to talk about it, talk to a sleep expert, uh, who works with youth athletes. Yep. All right, Dr. Herbert, maybe we'll have you for something one of these days. Sure. Happy to come back and update you with all the new information that's coming out daily. So thank you, everybody. Be safe, but also, you know, get out there and exercise. Do it safely. It's important. Thank you. Th all right, guys. Have a thank good you. Day. Thank you.